Exploring the natural world, one podcast episode at a time. This is For What It's Earth. Hi all, and thank you for joining me for another episode of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa, of the Art of Ecology. Here, nature enthusiasts, animal lovers, and eco-warriors can discover and explore so many facets of the environment that we all love, as well as some creative ways to make a positive difference for the planet. I know in the past, you know, it's been spring, as well as back in season one of For What It's Earth, I've been talking a lot about gardening for wildlife, but usually in regards of what sort of plants or bird feeders or how to attract pollinators and just incorporating those aspects of a wildlife garden into your area. But this week, now that the temperatures are steadily climbing and making life a little more livable for reptile and amphibians in the area, I really want to talk a bit more about the importance of non-pollinator or seed dispersers in your garden. I mean, it's really easy to talk about those animals just because if you have a garden, you probably have plants. So let's talk about the things that rely on those plants. But there's so many other animals and just life in general that is going to live in and use that space that you create. So today I specifically want to talk about the role that snakes play in the garden and how to create a viable snake habitat. I am going to warn you, for those who are weirded out or scared of snakes, We're talking a lot about them during this episode, and while I highly, highly, highly encourage you to listen and learn more about their role, begin to understand about their importance in our healthy ecosystems, I mean, knowledge is power, right? I also understand that some people are not comfortable or ready or able to hear about their fears at this time. So feel free to skip over this episode and come back for a listen when you are ready or you're in a better space. I know personally for me, I'm, I'm weirded out by bugs. As an ecologist, that's something that I'm trying to get better at. But if I'm in a car and I start to think about insects that I'm scared of, or arachnids specifically, it's spiders for me. Spiders and those camel crickets, anything with those creepy legs. For me, if I'm in a car or a smaller space, and I start to feel like, oh, they're on me, that's not a safe space for me to be listening and learning about those animals in. So maybe when I get home or I'm out on a walk and I can be in a safe space, that's a great time for me to be learning about those animals. So, you know, it's okay. I get it. I understand. Snakes are good and important even if they're not your cup of tea though. So please, when you're ready, come back and learn a little bit more about them. Overall, snakes don't have to be your favorite animal for you to realize, though, that they play a vital role in our ecosystems and they're worth protecting and creating a garden that suits not just those pretty pollinators, but snakes as well. For example, do you have mice in your cupboards or in your walls during the winter or even year-round? 
I know I, I've got them. I've always had them. I've grown up in the woods. Mice are just a part of life. Are you fascinated by and love raptors such as the red-tailed hawk? Well, without snakes, the world would be a much different place and not for the better. Those mice that are in your walls will be taking over and infesting your homes. Those hawks and falcons that we are like, whoa, those are so cool. They're going to decline even more rapidly than they already are. And that's just without snakes. These reptiles are a huge part of the food web. So let's kind of go over what food webs and food chains are to realize how snakes fit in. So let's think about the term food chain for a moment. Food chains look like the links of a chain necklace. One link connects to the next. So, for example, a food chain might look like a great horned owl who eats a mouse. So that's two links. Now that mouse link is going to connect to a grass seed link. And that grass seed link connects to the sun, where it gets its energy from. Now in a food web, things are going to get a little more complicated. Really in that they look no longer like a simple chain, but a whole slew of chains, all connected to look more like a jumbled, messy spider web. It's a food web. These food webs demonstrate the importance and the interconnection between species and how various animals may exist on many different individual chains at various levels. Snakes fit into that simple food chain as a mid-order predator. Mid-order predators mean that they are hunters, but ones that aren't apex predators or top tier predators. In that simple chain there, think about that chain link that I used before. These snakes would be above the mouse chain previously mentioned, but below that great horned owl link. Yes, owls such as that great horned owl, screech owls, they love snakes if they can get them. Now, in a more complicated food web, we start to see that snakes help manage populations of lower order animals, and usually they're the ones that we consider to be pests that we don't want around. They're going to hunt a variety of rodents, so that link, that chain link of snake connects to many, many other links. They're hunting a variety of rodents that eat our crops or they're in our, in our cabinets, in our walls, eating our snacks. I see you, whoever steals my peanuts and my pretzels. Not just a single mouse. They also eat insects that may scare or annoy us, such as crickets. I mean, think back to me. I appreciate snakes for the fact that they eat some of the insects that I would love to manage the populations of. They're eating those crickets. They eat cockroaches. They eat grubs and many, many others. But it's not just mice or insects. They're also eating other animals that can potentially harm you or carry diseases. Those aren't ones that we want the populations to be out of control with.
Something needs to manage them. And not only do snakes manage those populations, but they're also providing food then for higher level predators, for those apex or top tier predators. Remember, even though snakes are predators themselves, they are also predated upon. Animals that might eat snakes would include raptors, bobcats, coyotes, and many, many others. Remember how we mentioned the great horned owl before as part of that food chain? So many people love owls. And they are a super trendy group of animals at the moment. Lots of people like owls. You see owl stationery, owl accessories. Owls are everywhere. So if you love owls, save snakes. Do you love big cats? A lot of people love big cats. And it's not just cats like the bobcats that might be native here to North America. Even exotic Cats, such as lions or tigers, would eat snakes in their area too. So if you love big cats, save snakes. Ensuring the survival of one species means that you ensure the survival of all species that are connected to it. When one link of a simple chain is removed, all of the other chains, including those that link other chains together in a web, start to fall apart. And that means a not healthy and unhealthy ecosystem. Yes, like I said, I get it. Snakes can be scary. And one of the huge reasons, I mean, it's kind of ingrained in our subconscious biologically that snakes are able to hurt us and therefore, oh, it's a little scary, even though we shouldn't be scared of them. So let's take a look now real quick at why we're often scared of them. This is usually because deep ingrained in our subconscious, we're afraid that they might be venomous. And yeah, venomous snakes definitely have the capability of hurting, injuring, and killing us. But even venomous ones, they, they would prefer to flee when encountered. And here in this area, in northeastern America, a vast majority of snakes are non-venomous. Meaning that even if somehow it decided, oh, I'm feeling aggressive and I'm going to bite you, if they can even get their little tiny mouths around us and they bite us, it's going to feel like, ah, I got pricked by thorns or something. And we move on with life. It's not going to hurt us in the long run. And that's even if they decide that they're going to take that chance and actually fight. Usually, they're going to prefer to flee when they are approached. For an animal that is cold-blooded, we refer to snakes and amphibians, these reptiles or herps, as that whole category is called, as cold-blooded. This just means that they are ectothermic, meaning that they get their own body heat from outside resources. So when we see them basking on a log in the sun or on a rock, 
they are pulling and drawing in the heat from that environment in to warm their bodies up. So it takes a lot of energy to fight, way less energy to just simply slither away or to run. When you are an ectotherm, I mean, honestly, when you're anything, any wild animal, energy is a really, really valuable resource, and you should never, ever use it unnecessarily. That's one of the weird differences between humans and snakes, or just wildlife in general. Humans use energy kind of insignificantly. We don't often think about it because energy is a very easy thing for us to come by. For wildlife, that's not the case. So when it's even harder to come by because you have to not only ingest food, but also warm your body up via the environment, energy is really important. So they would much prefer to kind of investigate and observe the situation first and then make a decision. You may notice that snakes will flick their little tongues out at you. And this is not to figure out if they can taste you or if they can eat you. It's actually because they're trying to smell you and identify if you are a threat or not. They collect scent molecules in the air on their forked tongues. All the better to smell you with. And they'll pull them into their mouths where there is a special organ called the Jacobson's organ. That organ sits at the very roof of their mouth, kind of where our hard palate is in our mouths. By smelling the area around them, they can determine if you are a danger or not. So they might sit there, watch you, flick their tongues in and out to smell you, and then figure out, okay, am I in a dangerous situation? Or can I just sit here? Usually, snakes are way, 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 way smaller than us. So we're these huge, scary giants. And they'll slither away to a less disturbed area and find a nice spot to bask in the warmth of the sun or to look for food. For all of these reasons, and also because I think their faces are kind of cute, I urge homeowners to build a hibernacula or an overwintering home for snakes. These homes provide snakes with important habitat, warmth, and protection. And the best part about it is that they're really easy to make. First, you're going to want to dig a hole in the ground. It should be below the frost line in your area. So you can find that out by doing a basic Google search of what is the frost line in this zip code or this state. These ectothermic animals need to stay warm. So when you dig a hole that will go below that frost line, you ensure that they're not going to freeze over the winter. Then. You fill that hole with large rocks, and I mean things that are, you know, bigger than the size of your hand, even the size of your face. The bigger, the better for this little level. If you're here in Pennsylvania and you listen to that podcast that I had Alexandra Schmidt on, you know that there's a lot of rocks in Pennsylvania soil. 
you might be able to use some of those that you took out of the hole in the first place. Otherwise, you may have to go out and find these big rocks. You could go to a hardware store or a place like Home Depot or Lowe's and see if they have any rocks available. Once you have filled it almost to the top with large, loosely fitting rocks, because, I mean, keep in mind, there needs to be space for these snakes to move around. You don't want tight, tight junctions. Cover it with brush. It's always great to pick up sticks after your trees suffer some storm damage, so just add it to your growing hibernaculum. This brush is going to create really great points of access. It's going to help insulate the hole, and it's going to offer protection as they're leaving or going from their home. This also, even though it's insulating, it provides plenty of space for sunlight to get in and to warm those big, large rocks up. They're going to heat up in the sun and now provide a sheltered basking site. Now, even though I said that you're filling it up with these large rocks, your hibernaculum doesn't need to be super, super huge. So even if you only have a small backyard, you can still try to make a little one. Just make sure that it can fit at least three large rocks. But again, bigger is better here. Now, I do want to make it known, if you make it, they'll come. But it can take a while for them to move in. So don't get discouraged if it goes unused the first year. Continue to check back and you'll be sure to get some new little predators taking care of your mice and rodent problem or your insect problem. Some snakes that you might start seeing here using your hibernaculum here specifically in Pennsylvania may include snakes such as the garter snake, yellow ring neck snakes, eastern milk snakes, decays brown snake, eastern racers, or others. In fact, if you have a body of water nearby, maybe you have a koi pond at your home, or you butt up against a stream. Or, for example, I live very close to the Delaware River. Not that I live on the river, but I'm close. You may even find an eastern water snake, which I do want to make clear is non-venomous. That is a myth that water snakes are venomous. You may find one of these cutie pies basking on the rocks that you make your hibernaculum with before they go and find a habitat and a home in your little pond or your river or your stream nearby. So for what it's earth, each person who can create a safe hibernacula or sheltered area for these wonderful snake species can be making a huge positive impact, not just on the health of local snake populations, but also on the health of the other animals that rely on snakes or get eaten by snakes, the others that are connected in that chain or food web. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with the Art of Ecology. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please support, review, and continue to follow along to explore more of the wonderful ecosystems that we're a part of. Next week, I do want to make note, based on how recording in advance goes, will be my Arbor Day special, 
this week was just did not line up with when Arbor Day falls. And I will be having guest speaker Zach Jacobs join me to talk about the importance of trees, not just in the ecosystem, but for our mental health as well. We will focus on trees. I mean, it's Arbor Day. However, we'll chat about the importance of just getting outdoors for both our physical and our mental well-being. So stay tuned next week for that Arbor Day special episode. For What It's Earth can be found on many podcast streaming platforms. For more tips and eco-inspiration, you can check out my blog at www.theartofecology.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at The Art of Ecology. And with that, I will see you next week with Zach Jacobs on For What It's Earth.